and welcome to Beyond Beckdale, the podcast about film and feminism. This week's episode is devoted to one of the greatest film editors of all time, Anne V. Coates. Anne Vos Coates was born in Surrey in December 1925, and when she was a little girl she dreamed of becoming a horse trainer, but this was not to be. Instead, she grew up to be one of the greatest film editors, nominated for five Academy Awards and winning one for her skill. And even though she was born in Britain, she never won a BAFTA. Shame on you, British Academy. Known as Anne V to us mere mortals, and Annie to directors like David Lynch, Steven Soderbergh and Clint Eastwood, Coates edited some of the best films ever made, with a career that spanned nearly 60 years. Back in episode 2 of the podcast, I interviewed editor Pauline Antonio, and we discussed why there were so many more female... We discussed why there were so many more female film editors than any other role behind the scenes. Feel free to go back to episode two and listen to our conversation. It's very interesting. Um, That conversation took me on an odyssey to find Verna Field's work and the work of Anne V. Coates. And then I thought, right, I'm going to try and set up an interview with her. But unfortunately, Anne V. died in May of this year. Anne was a real asset to the film industry and was working well into her 90s. And that's why I wanted to devote this episode to her work. Some of Anne's earliest work is also some of her most famous, and that being her work editing Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's masterpiece. This must have been quite a task for any editor, given the final cut of the film is a lengthy 222 minutes. At the time, the industry definitely thought that Anne was one of the new guys or girls. However, she'd been quietly honing her craft for around 15 years and was around 36, 37 when Lawrence of Arabia was completed. Here's a clip of an interview that Anne gave to the American Film Institute where she talks about how she was hired by Lean for the job. I'm just going to tell you a quick story, really, for students. And that is how I got the job on Lawrence of Arabia. And we bumped into Jerry O'Hara one morning, who was a top AD, and a friend of ours. So I said, what are you up to, Jerry? He said, well, I'm working with David Lean, doing some tests of Albert Finney for Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which was what Lawrence was called in those days. I said, well, have you got anybody cutting them? And Jerry said, well, I don't know. I have no idea. But he said, I'll put your name forward. Anyway, by about 10 o'clock on Monday morning, the production manager, John Palmer, called me. He said, uh, we're not paying any money, £50 for the couple of weeks. But he said, if you want to come and do them, please show up. He said, David, David says he's met you, and so you don't need to see you again, but just show up on the first day of shooting, which is what I did. Anne goes on to mention in this interview how Lean asked her to screen an early cut of the film to the whole crew and she nervously did so but was shaking the whole time and didn't think it was ready and then after the uh, screening finished Lean took her to one side and said that he'd never seen anyone cut a film like he would have done so himself. So uh, that must have been quite a compliment and his testament to her skill. 
Lawrence of Arabia cemented Anne's reputation specifically due to one particular cut in the movie which is known as a match cut. Here's a little bit of the scene that precedes it. Of course I'm the man for the job. What is the job, by the way? Find Prince Faisal. Good. And when I found him? Find out what kind of man he is. And here's a little more from Anne talking about her love for this exchange between characters just before the match cut. A point I make very often, but I've never done it in connection with that piece, how long he played in that two-shot. You know, there was cover, obviously. Right. But, uh, I, I just love I'm doing it now. You don't always get the opportunity. You know, everybody's doing close-ups, close-ups and close-ups and swooping cameras and stuff. But just to hold it, two wonderful actors, both playing well, I think is so effective. So let's get to the cut itself, which is from this scene, two men talking, and then Peter O'Toole's Lawrence lighting a match, which cuts very sharply to the sun rising over the Arabian desert. The cut itself was going to be a dissolve and not a straight cut. Coates discusses in various interviews that editing the film was made with a China graph pencil, literally making marks on the roll of the film. I've actually found some nice black and white footage of editors doing this um, from Getty and I'll post it in the show notes. Film editing then was made in machines and nowadays is done on computer software. So I think it's important for me to draw attention to the fact that one of the greatest cuts in the cinema was made by hand using what we would now term old-fashioned techniques. It's a little bit like watching Citizen Kane watching this cut because when you watch it now you think... Mm, it's good but it's it's not as closely matched as it could be but the effect is there and the effect is wonderful with the swirling music and the similar colours um, and the sense of being able to cut across time in such a quick dynamic way and still be able to tell the story and I expect that maybe for this cut alone this is why Anne won her Oscar What's really funny about this as well is how it's called a match cut because it matches two scenes. There's a very famous match cut in 2001 with um, a bone being flung into the sky from the, the apes um, and then the um, spaceship in space. You'll probably know it better than I'm describing it. This is actually a match cut that uses a match as part of the cutting. I highly recommend that you watch the scene and you can always find a video on YouTube and just watch it if you don't want to watch 222 minutes of Lawrence of Arabia. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It is recognised that you have a funny sense of fun. Anne has worked on plenty of amazing films and although Lawrence of Arabia was the only Oscar that she won, she was nominated for five Oscars in her career.
Her work on historical drama Beckett was the next film which won her her second Oscar nomination, but it was the third nomination that was for a much more famous film, David Lynch's The Elephant Man of 1980, a monochrome masterpiece that couldn't be any more different to Lawrence of Arabia. You can hear the drama in this pivotal scene where John Hurt's Elephant Man is being chased through a train station by a horde chanting Elephant Elephant at him. Well, that was quite emotional, and that was only a scene of 20 seconds length, but I suppose that's testament to the director and the editor. Speaking of elephants, there are a couple in this room. Firstly, Anne, along with the aforementioned Werner Fields, were pioneers for the thousands of female editors who would follow them in the, in the years to come. But both of these brilliant film editors worked almost solely with men, perhaps meeting with a costume designer or the odd personal assistant. Many of them didn't see other women on film sets through most of their careers. One pioneer, even two pioneers, sadly do not change an industry. And the second element is that if you look at the majority of the films that were edited by Anne, I wonder if she ever might have gotten tired at looking at reams and reams of films of men talking to men about men. The vast majority of films Anne worked on failed the Bechdel test and the ones that passed normally scraped through with the odd scene or two. However, in her later career, perhaps in line with the industry finally catching up with the fact that it was alienating half of its audience, or perhaps just because she wanted to, Anne started to work on films made with women stars, made for female audiences and sometimes made by a female director. But let's go back to the 1990s, where Anne had a pretty male-dominated time. She worked steadily, winning plaudits for her work on big-budget films like In the Line of Fire, where she was nominated for another film editing Oscar, and Chaplin. I'm going to gloss over Congo and Striptease, which she also worked on. But then, in 1998, she worked on what is one of my most favourite films. The movie features in my top ten of all time, and I must have watched it ten times or more. I never get bored of Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. If you haven't seen it, please feel free to stop the podcast and go and watch it now. Based on an Elmore Leonard story... It tells the tale of a semi-successful bank robber, Jack Foley, and Karen Sisko, the detective who gets wrapped up in his latest prison escape. Jack and Karen are played by George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, and out of sight fizzes with some of the best on-screen chemistry between leads that's ever been committed to celluloid. Here is one of the best scenes from the film. It's quite long, a couple of minutes, because I haven't been able to cut it, which is probably further testament to Coates' skill. It needs to stay as it is. Jack and Karen are on opposite sides of the law, but they decide to have a time out in a no-man's land of a hotel in Detroit. 
snow is falling and they meet and they talk. Here it is. Wanna buy a drink? Yeah, I'd love one. Sit down. I'm Celeste. It takes forever to get a drink around here. There's only one mattress. Oh, don't go. Those guys bother you. Oh, they're fine. I mean, you just got here. You help yourself. You like bourbon? I love it. We got that out of the way. Tell me, Celeste, what do you do for a living? I'm a sales rep, and I came here to call in a customer, but uh, they gave me a hard time because I'm a girl. Is that how you think of yourself? As a sales rep? As a girl. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I like your hair. I like your outfit. But actually, this is my second favorite outfit. I had a first favorite, but it got ruined, and oh, I had to get rid of it. You did? It smelled. Really? Having it clean didn't help? No. <laughs> so tell me, Gary, what do you do for a living? How far do you want to go with this? <sighs> Not yet. Don't say anything yet. I don't think it works for somebody else. You know, Gary and Celeste, what do they know about anything? Well, this is your game I've never played before. It's not a game. It's not something you play. Well, does this make any sense to you? It doesn't have to. It's something that happens. It's like seeing someone for the first time. Like you could be passing on the street and, and you look at each other and for a few seconds there's this kind of a, a recognition. Like you both know something. The next moment the person is gone. And, and it's too late to do anything about it. And you always remember it because it was there and you let it go. And you think to yourself, what if I had stopped? What if I had said something? What if? What if? It may only happen a few times in your life. Or once. Or once. Ah, that was better and much more satisfying than listening to John Hurt screaming. It isn't just me that loves Out of Sight. The Academy also recognised the editing skill involved in bringing this American tale to life and Coates was nominated for her fifth film editing Oscar. But she only ever won the Oscar for Lawrence of Arabia, apart from an honorary Oscar later on. Anne followed out of sight with what I'll call her feminist period. The next film she applied her skills to was another goodie, Erin Brockovich. Released in 2000, also directed by Soderbergh, it's flabbergasting to think that Anne was about 75 years young on the date of its release. Here's one of my favourite scenes from Erin Brockovich. Councillors? Councillors? Let's be honest here. $20 million is more money than these people have ever dreamed of. Oh, see, now that pisses me off. First of all, since the demur, we have more than 400 plaintiffs in. Let's be honest, we all know there are more out there. 
They may not be the most sophisticated people, but they do know how to divide, and $20 million isn't shit when you split it between them. Aaron. Second of all, these people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20 like Rosa Diaz, a client of ours, or have their spine deteriorate like Stan Bloom, another client of ours. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker, or what you might expect someone to pay you for your uterus, Miss Sanchez. Then you take out your calculator and you multiply that number by 100. Anything less than that is a waste of our time. By the way, we had that water brought in special for you folks. Came from Well and Hinkley. <clears throat> I think this meeting is over. In that scene, there's a really nice pause where. Julia Roberts Sprockovich puts the glass down. They all look at the glass, which has the water in, which might be from the poisoned treatment plant. Um, and when you listen to it, I think you can hear how long the gap is between her point about the water and it landing with the lawyers on the other side. And I'm guessing that was an editing choice partly made by Anne. I want to now take a moment to consider the fact that even today, 2018, for a woman to be working in Hollywood over 50 is seen as some kind of success because it's apparently such a difficult thing to do. So for Anne to still be delivering some of her best work at age 75 is both testament to her skill and to her work ethic. Uh, When most people would want to retire, she is delivering some of her best work. And maybe that's something that everybody in the film industry, particularly women, need to think about whether there is really a natural place to stop for retirement or whether this kind of work can be done until old age. There are certainly enough film directors who are pretty old making films. Look at Clint Eastwood. He's still going. He's 88 and I'd argue he's made some of his best work as a director in the last 10 years. If you think of films like Changeling and Gran Torino... As a quick aside, um, I kind of want to praise Steven Soderbergh here, who I've always liked, but um, he was perfectly happy to hire a 75-year-old, albeit a Oscar winner, for two projects in a five-year period. Um, and, you know, he knows what he's doing. If you look at uh, Soderbergh's rate of return, so the amount of money it takes to make a film that he directs versus how much he makes back, um, the figures are amazing from Sex, Lies and Videotape all the way through to Magic Mike, which I think was made on a $7 million budget. I will always trust him to make the best decisions and he made a very good decision in hiring Anne. Now well into the new millennium, I think Anne may have finally decided to slow down. She made some interesting choices from Adrian Lyne's Unfaithful with Diane Lane in 2002 to The Golden Compass in 2007, which was an international hit and made about double its budget, but wasn't really as revered in Hollywood as it should be. I quite liked it. I liked both films. And now we come to one of Anne's last editing jobs, which was on 
wait for it, Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, whatever you think about the movie or its subject matter, Fifty Shades was directed by a woman, Sam Taylor-Johnson, based on a book and a screenplay written by a woman, E.L. James, and includes pivotal roles for women, including Dakota Johnson's Anastasia. Um, It wasn't just edited by Anne. There were also two other editors for Fifty Shades of Grey, who were also women, Deborah Neil Fisher and Lisa Gunning, and a shout out to them. And I can't help but think that Anne must have had a smile on her face when she was having to edit scenes like this. What are you doing later? I'm working at the hardware store till seven. I'll have Taylor pick you up then. I would like to bite that lip. I think I'd like that too. I'm not going to touch you. Not until I have your written consent. What? I'll explain later. Come, I'll take you home. Apart from the lip biting, I like to think that Anne found it very satisfying to work with so many women on the job, something that she hadn't really experienced throughout most of her career. And so ends my tribute episode to Anne V. Coates. I think that she did an exemplary job through a very long and successful career and she should be an inspiration for anyone who wants to get into filmmaking, particularly editing and particularly women because even for someone born in 1925, if you want it enough and you work hard enough and you're in the right place at the right time, you can win an Oscar irrespective of what your gender is. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, There are lots and lots of articles out there and brilliant obituaries for Anne V. Coates. So I highly recommend that you go out and seek more information about her and her work and definitely have a look at the Match Match Cut from Lawrence of Arabia. I'm Contrera and you've been listening to Beyond Bechdel. To play us out, here's some funky music from Out of Sight. I suggest finishing the podcast and then going to watch Steven Soderbergh's masterpiece now. Thank you, Anne V. Coates. We salute you. Until next.